You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 20 is where we will be in our study of God's Word tonight, Matthew chapter 20. We read beginning with verse 1, we'll read down to verse 16. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. Now when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, They supposed that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Now when they received it, they were grumbling at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Let's pray together. Lord, help me as I strive to explain this parable that our Savior gave to us. Grant, Lord, that the explanation would be clear, and though simple, it would be impactful to all of us who consider it tonight. Be at work in the hearts of your church, your people, that we might be edified as a result of what we hear, that our lives would be changed in an ongoing way into that which pleases you, conform more and more to the image of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we have the mind of our Savior. You've given that to us in salvation, and yet we must battle with sin every day, and we must bring our thoughts into submission and obedience with what you have revealed. And so even tonight, Lord, help us to do that. I pray for anyone hearing me who doesn't yet know your son who doesn't have eternal life. Lord, may tonight be the night that you save. We will thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. 
Amen. One of the things interesting about Puritan sermons is often how they are organized. Not uncommon at all for a Puritan sermon to be very rigid in its organization. You begin with explanation of the text, the reading of it, the explanation of it. Then you move to what the Puritans would call the doctrine of the text. And then you would finish with what they refer to as the uses of a particular passage. So you have the doctrine up front and you have the uses that would follow. Well, if tonight's sermon was a Puritan sermon, I would say to you that what I am most concentrating on is one of the particular uses of the doctrine that our Lord gives us in this parable. What I want to concentrate on tonight is encouragement for latecomers. Latecomers into the Lord's vineyard. Latecomers into the kingdom of heaven. Christ tells us at the beginning of this that this parable has to do with the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven is like. And when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the realm of salvation. This parable has meaning for what you and I are experiencing right now in this life after the Lord has saved us. And this parable has meaning as we think about our future. As we think about a future literal kingdom, a thousand-year kingdom on the earth, and then we think about the eternal kingdom that will follow that, this parable applies to all of it, to what we're living right now and to what our future is going to hold. We're going to look at this parable under four headings. Number one, what the parable describes. Let's just take note of the details. What is our Lord describing in the story that He tells? Second, what the parable teaches. What is the main point of the parable? Third, what the parable is meant to produce in God's people. What is it meant to produce in our hearts? As we hear it, as we understand it, now how should it affect us? And then fourth, some uses of the parable, that is how do we apply it? Its effect upon our hearts and minds, that's one issue, but then how we live it out, how we apply it, understand it in the realm of application, that's how we're going to finish First of all, what the parable describes, it's actually a very simple story. We've read it, so I'm just going to try to summarize it. It's a story that some of us have sort of seen in living color. Years ago when we lived in the little town of Elgin, especially in the days when the church was in a temporary place, we were meeting on a street corner in downtown Elgin, Early in the morning on weekday mornings, you would see day laborers gather on the particular corner where our church met. And you would see men pull up in pickup trucks, and you would see those day laborers climb into the back of a pickup truck. I assume they were farmers, and they would hire these men for the day, and then return them back to the street corner at the end of the day. It's the same kind of scene being described in our verses the hiring of day workers. You have a landowner who goes out early in the morning. It appears that the work day is from 6 in the morning to 6 in the evening, taking note of the times that are mentioned in the text. So he was out early, early in the morning to hire men who would begin working in the vineyard at the break of dawn, so to speak, 6 a.m. So that's when he makes his initial hires. Then at the third hour, that is 9 a.m., he goes out and he hires more on the promise of a fair wage. He tells the first men that he hires exactly what he's going to pay them. 
going to pay you a denarius for the day. That was the going rate of a day's labor. You see that in verse 2. But then when he goes out at the third hour, 9 a.m., and he hires more, he says to them, verse 4, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. So he just promises them a fair wage. They've missed a few hours of work, but he says, I'll pay you fairly. At noon and at 3 o'clock, he does the same thing. And then finally at 5 o'clock, with only one hour left in the day, he hires the final group of workers. About the 11th hour, he went out, verse 6, found others standing around, said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So he's hiring men to work in the vineyard all day long. When we get to the end of the day, when evening comes, verse 8, the owner of that vineyard instructs the foreman to give the laborers their wages. And he begins, and this is really the key to the story, he begins with the last group first. That way, the people who started the day witness what these people are being given, and as a result, their expectations are informed by what they're witnessing. Call the laborers, verse 8, pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one, this is amazing, this is amazing generosity, they received a denarius. They received a full day's pay for one hour. And on the payment went until they arrived at those who began the day working for this landowner. Verse 10, and when those hired first came, they supposed that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. The result is they begin to grumble. When they received it, verse 11, they were grumbling at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. What does the landowner do? He explains to them that they have not been mistreated. This is not an instance of mistreatment. Rather, this is an instance of great generosity. And in fact, what they're battling with is not that they've been mistreated. What they're battling with is jealousy. Over his generosity to those who work the least. Verse 13, he answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? I mean, haven't I done exactly what I told you I would do? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? And then he says this, or is your eye envious? because I am generous. So the last shall be first and the first last. This is what's being described. Day laborers being hired. A payment promised to those who began the day. Extreme generosity to the entire group, especially those who work the least. Now the question is, here's our second point, what does the parable teach? What is the main point of the story? Well, it's found in verse 16. So the last shall be first and the first last. And what that statement means 
is that the kingdom reflects the sovereign grace of God. So that what God chooses to do in His sovereign grace is up to Him, and it often is different than what we would expect. We expect that the first will be first and the last will be last, but because God is free to do as He pleases, because He is free in His sovereign grace, it's often the case that the first are last and the last are first. What the story emphasizes is the freedom of God to do as He pleases and the righteousness of God, that is, whatever He pleases to do, that's right. He deals justly, and yet at the same time He deals with people mercifully, graciously. The way that Jesus dealt with the rich young ruler demonstrated that salvation is by grace alone in Christ. The rich young man thought he had kept the commands of God. Christ, through his questions, probes the man's conscience until finally the man understands you have not kept all the commands. In fact, you're violating the greatest command, the greatest two commands. You don't love God with all that you are. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. Reduces that man to the point where he ought to have been humbled, yet offers him all the treasures of heaven, if he'll just turn from life as he's known it and trust in the Son of God. You can be saved, but it's going to be by grace, not by your works. And the man refuses that, walks away grieved. And then Christ demonstrates the graciousness of salvation to his own disciples, as we saw this morning, as he explains that encounter and reflects on that encounter and applies that encounter and tells them that no matter what you've lost in following him, the disciples exclaim, we've left everything to follow you. Yes, but whatever you've lost, you've gained a hundredfold more. You've been dealt with very graciously. You don't lose anything. You gain everything. And then he gives a parable about the equality that's found in the kingdom of heaven. A kind of equality that's experienced because all who are saved are saved by the grace of God. And if you think about the grace of God in salvation, and you think about this parable, you'll see how the beauty of God's grace is, is unfolded through this story. I mean, just, just using the analogy, now think about how God has dealt with us in saving us, and how God will deal with us one day in rewarding us. Remember, Peter asks about that. What will the future hold for us? We've left everything and followed you. What does the future hold for us? Think about this story. First of all, in the story, the landowner is not obligated to hire anybody. The day laborers gather in the marketplace because they need work. They are in need. They desire to be hired. They need money. They need to supply for their families. If the landowner doesn't hire them, they have nothing. So they're not doing him a favor. The fact that he would hire any of them is a blessing to them. He's not obligated to hire any of them. The story also demonstrates that he hired whom he wanted. And he hired them when he wanted he left some in the marketplace. They were standing there idle all day. So 
He hired the ones that he wanted to hire, and yet as the day goes on, he keeps hiring more and more. So he hires whomever he wants, and he hires them when he wants. Some early in the day, some late in the day. He is absolutely truthful with them. What he tells them he will do, he does. The ones that he hired at the very beginning of the day, he told them exactly what he would pay them, and he did. He promised a fair wage to those who followed, and he paid those people exactly what he paid the first ones. And then he was extremely generous to the last group, paid the same amount for working one hour. So he pays them what he says he will pay them, yet he pays them what he wants to pay them. What does all of this illustrate? It illustrates the freedom of the landowner. In fact, he says that, doesn't he? Verse 15, is it not lawful? Don't I have the right to do what I wish with what is my own? This is what's being stressed in the story. The landowner's absolute freedom in this situation. And so what is also illustrated is God's freedom in His grace. Because salvation is all of grace, it is God's right to bring into His kingdom and family whomever He wants. No one is owed salvation. He didn't have to save any of us. And He can treat us all equally if He wants, regardless of the time of the day that we were brought into His service, so to speak. Whether we were saved young or whether we were saved in our older years, whether we spent years serving Christ or we spent a day serving Christ or an hour serving Christ, if He were to save us on our deathbed, He can give us in the eternity to come whatever He wants. That's the lesson. Third point, what then is the parable meant to affect in us? How is it meant to inform our minds and hearts and attitudes? What is this knowledge meant to change in us? Peter's just said, we left everything to follow you. And they had. I mean, they literally had. And so you can imagine the kind of mindset they could have fallen prey to, the kind of expectations that could have filled their hearts about what the future was going to hold for them versus anybody else in the kingdom of heaven. You know that more than once they came to the Lord Jesus asking, at one point sending mom to ask, talk about the two of the disciples, to ask, what place will my sons have in your kingdom? Vying to be the greatest in the kingdom. This is something that was on their minds. And so our Lord tells this story immediately following to illustrate, men, you need to humble your hearts. You need to recognize how blessed you are. With men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You're not mine because you're so special. You are mine because of God's grace to you. Meant to humble us, meant to kill the pride that rises up so easily in us, the feeling that we are owed something for our service to God especially if we think that our service is greater than someone else's service. If what we have done is more important or if what we have done in our own minds has lasted longer, etc., etc. So, so these are the sorts of attitudes that could rise up in us and the story is meant to put it to death. 
If you're tempted to think that way, you need to just stop and realize who you really are and who your master really is and what his freedom is. We learned about this recently. We're reminded of this in Luke 17. When our Lord said in the 10th verse of Luke chapter 17, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. When a slave does his work out in the field, comes home and does more work in the house, he doesn't have the expectation he's going to get some sort of special treatment because he did what he should have done. Rather, he understands that's his duty, that's his work. So this is our mindset as servants of God. If we were to have done everything commanded of us, and we never have, but if we had, we've only done what we should have done. So instead of exalting ourselves in our minds, praising ourselves in our minds, we need to humble ourselves. Thank God that He brought us into the work, using the analogy. Thank God that He hired us standing on the corner when He could have left us there. Thank God that everything He's promised us is true. He's not withheld from us anything that He promised us in His Son. And however He deals with us both in time and for eternity is better than we deserve. This is meant to increase our sense of God's kindness to us, God's faithfulness to us. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you agree with me? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Isn't this exactly what I told you I would do? Which brings us to the forethought tonight, that is application, some uses of the parable. How might this parable be applied Let me mention a few ways. First of all, think about salvation history. An application from the standpoint of salvation history. God's right to do what He has done in His church. From the standpoint of salvation history, we Gentiles, most of the people in this room are not Jews. Most of the people in this room are Gentiles. We Gentiles come late in the history of redemption. And yet we stand on equal ground with Jewish believers. This is not to deny that God has a plan for the nations in the everlasting future that is coming. There's a plan for the nations in the millennial kingdom. There's a plan that's going to involve a recognition of nations in the eternal kingdom. But we all come to God the same way, through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. You and I did not have to become Jewish proselytes in order to be a part of the people of God. And the Bible teaches so clearly that in the New Covenant, we are all one new man in Jesus Christ. We all stand in the same place, in the grace of God in Christ. And you can imagine how a Jewish believer might be tempted to say, is this right? I mean, we've been standing under the heat of the sun longer than these Gentiles have. Think about how the Jewish people have suffered through many persecutions, mistreatment, identified as the people of God. But now the dividing wall has come down, and in the church there's absolute equality. What have the Gentiles done to deserve equal treatment? Here we are standing 2,000 years into the church's history, 
And we now, for our entire lifetime, we have known Gentile-dominated Christianity. It's a temporary hardening, but Israel has been hardened. So most of the people being converted are not Jews, they're Gentiles. But imagine being a part of that first generation of the Lord's church after the day of Pentecost. Think about what it was like to see this huge influx of Gentile believers coming out of paganism. And you're saying that they don't have to embrace our Jewishness. We're a people who've been raised under the Mosaic system. We're a people who've been paying attention to the law of Moses. We're a people who have evidenced a conscience toward the one and only true and living God. And now you're saying we stand on absolute equal footing with people being saved out of mysticism and paganism. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, is that right? Is that fair? Well, it's absolutely just because no one deserves to be saved. And it's gracious. It's merciful. That those who have come late in the day, so to speak, have the same reward as those who began the day and have been serving the Lord in the scorching heat and have endured much hardship, God is free in His grace to do what He pleases, and it's right whatever He pleases to do. This is also to be applied from the standpoint of individual salvation. This humbles all of us if we think about it much. Some of us were saved. I'm not one of them. I've told you I was delivered, rescued by the Lord in my teenage years, but some of us were saved in our early childhood years. And so some of you have served the Lord for 40, 50, 60 years, 70 years. And here's this person who has lived a wasteful life all their days, and they come to Christ on their deathbed and will share in the same eternal glory as you. And you and I have lived our lives in relative ease in the United States, but imagine someone who, who has suffered as a believer all their life in a persecution-torn nation, and maybe even a person being saved on their deathbed was the persecutor. And now we're going to share in the same heaven, in the same glory, with the same glorious gifts from God? Well, that's right. Why? Because none of you deserve it. The one who's been serving all day long didn't deserve it, and the one who was saved on the deathbed didn't deserve it. It's all the grace of God. And He can do as He pleases, and what He does is right. So it has an application when you think about salvation history. It has an application when you think about individual salvation history. But here's the use of the doctrine that I especially wanted to stress tonight. What this parable highlights is how God delights to show mercy even at the end of the day. The last are dealt with bountifully. The landowner delighted in generosity. And in fact, he was saying in the story, are you battling with an envious eye? Is there a jealousy going on because of how generous I've been? toward these who are rewarded just like you when they've only been in the field for an hour. 
This is our God. He delights in showing mercy. So I want to encourage latecomers, or you could call them life wasters. Have you ever known someone like this? They say, oh, how I wish I had come to the Lord when I was young. Oh, how I envy you who have served the Lord all your days. Oh, how ashamed I am that it took me this long to understand the gospel. It took me this long to soften my heart and bow my knee. I've wasted most of my life. And here I am coming to know Jesus at the very end. Now, this parable should encourage you. Reminds us that we all start life in the same place. Estranged from God. No one is born a member of God's family and kingdom. You have to be born again. The Lord has to save you to make you a member of His family. All born with the same need, forgiveness of our sins. This was our greatest need. The forgiveness of our sins and the changing of our very natures. That estrangement from God wasn't just a legal one. It was, it was at the heart level. Haters of God. So that when the Lord saved us, He not only forgave us of all of our sins, but He changed us. Made us God lovers instead of God haters. And we all had the same need. We all come the same way. Casting away from ourselves any other hope, any other lying belief that there's a way to be saved except Christ. We come by God's grace to us in Jesus, by believing the gospel, that simple saving word from God, we believe it. That's how we were saved. Whether that's when you're seven or that's when you're 70, we came the same way. And just like in the story, none of these people serve more than a day. Some early in the day, some late in the day, but none of them more than a day. Life is brief for all of us. We just have a day. If you're saved late in the day, thank God you were saved late in the day because nobody has more than a day. The day wasn't spent before the Lord was merciful to you. Could have been, but it wasn't. And one of the ways that God puts His mercy and grace on display is by saving some late in the day. Do you understand, dear ones, salvation is not about us, is it? It's about putting the glory of our God on display. And God's glory is put on display when He has mercy upon some early in the day and His Name is put on display when he has mercy on some at the very end of the day. I mean, there's only an hour left. And we tend to think it's about us. So how long have I served and what do I deserve and why should they get what I got? And we think it's about us, but it's not about us. It's about him. And so if you're a life waster, if the Lord has been merciful to you at the very end, just recognize you're one of the trophies of God's demonstration of His mercy at the end of the day. But never presume on God's kindness. You see, there's someone hearing me who will say, the, the devil takes truth and he twists it for the destruction of souls. 
And there's someone who will hear a message like this and they'll say to themselves, well, then I'll wait. God delights to show mercy at the end of the day, so I'll wait. I just want to remind you it's mercy. It's not something anybody is owed, guaranteed. Don't presume on His kindness. Death is certain for all of us. You don't know when your day is going to be over. For some of us, it is absolutely the truth to say this could be your last day. It could be. Opportunities don't last forever. When the landowner shows up at the corner and says, come on, get in the truck, as I witnessed in Elgin, get in. When he calls, if you recognize your need, then you had better get in. And so if you are late in life, maybe someone hearing me tonight, you don't know Christ, you're 60 years old, 70 years old, 80 years old. You grieve Your conscience is burdened because you know you've wasted your life. Maybe you've wasted your life in terms of what was expected of you. Maybe you've wasted your life in the sense that you could have come and should have come so many times, but you haven't. What I want to exhort you to tonight is to come. Come tonight. Give your life to Christ today. Are you 10? Are you 15? Are you 30? Are you 40? Are you 70? Today's the day of salvation. Give your life to Jesus today because He desires you to come. The call, the general call of God through the preaching of the gospel is sincere. The Spirit says, come. The bride says, come. And the offer is always genuine. And for those of us who have served under the hot sun for a long time, Will we rejoice in the latecomers? No room for pride. Do you have your resume in your mind? Look at how I've served the Lord. Look at how long I've served the Lord. Look at the places where I've served the Lord. Look at the way the Lord has used me. Do we have our little resume in our head? Will you throw it away? Because your salvation is explained by the word grace, mercy. No room for pride. No room for jealousy. No room for resentment. This would have spoken to those Jewish believers struggling with the influx of Gentiles coming to Christ. No room for resentment or jealousy or the holding on to old bitternesses and things that... No, rejoice in the grace and mercy of God to sinners. Because we all come the same way. But more than just rejoice in it, Work for it. Compel them to come in. As I said, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. So who do you know tonight? That maybe it looks like for them it's too late. Maybe even in your own mind, you have said, well, perhaps it's just too late. How many times have they heard? How many times have they been exposed? How many times have I witnessed to them? How many times have I prayed for them? How many times have they walked away with open eyes and just rejected truth? How much of their life have they wasted? And maybe with just a a hint of pride in your heart as you say it, like the difference between you and them is that you're so wise and they're so foolish. Would you recognize that the difference between you and them 
is the mercy of God and that what is impossible with men is possible with God so that even at this late hour, you would say, the landowner will still have you. Your sins can be forgiven. We can share the same eternal future. We can be in the same place with the same King, the same Savior, the same loving Lord. Will you stop refusing now because the day is almost over? Would you come? And if you know someone like that, would you compel them to listen to the voice of the Son of God through the declaration of the gospel and give their lives to Jesus? Simple, straightforward, but if we'll believe it, life and attitude altering. God has a right to save whomever He wants, whenever He wants, and then to give them whatever He wants. And whatever he chooses to do is right. And the church would say, amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy to us in Jesus. Thank you that though we deserved nothing, you have given us everything. Thank you that our salvation is not a commentary on us, not on our wisdom, not on our power, not on our ability, but rather it's, it's all explained by you. It was impossible for us, but your power made it so. And Lord, though we serve you all day long under scorching heat, may we never consider that to be something in which we boast or are exalted, but rather as slaves, we say, I've just done what I should have done. And may we, in fact, Lord, be full of gratefulness for your kindness to us to make us your own, for you didn't have to. And may we rejoice in your mercy to late comers. May we rejoice to see a life that's been largely wasted, rescued, even if it's at the very end, and to see how it puts your name on display. You're a God of absolute justice, but you're a God of unbelievable mercy. And you delight to save even when it's late in the day. We give you praise and thanks for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.